0: As uh, Gary was um, listing all the points of controversy surrounding the figure of Adam, I was sitting there thinking, I'm glad I'm not dealing with any of those. Uh, My task, I think, is a fairly straightforward one. And that is, uh, it's uh, the first half of a biblical theological survey of Adam, dealing with the first 70% of the Bible. How did the people of God regard Adam? in Old Testament times, and so I'm going to try and set uh, the the biblical teaching, Old Testament teaching on Adam in in an ancient Near Eastern context, within the context of Old Testament theology, specifically Old Testament theology rather than systematic theology, and also make some mention of some of the current debates about Adam in Old Testament studies. And in order to do this, I'm giving myself two specific questions the first is what did it mean to an Old Testament Israelite to be a son of Adam if we could go back in the TARDIS and speak to an Old Testament Israelite and say what does it mean to you to be a son of Adam, what answer would he give and then more time I'm going to give to the question what did an Old Testament Israelite think happened in the Garden of Eden so Actually, I suppose I'm talking about an Old Testament Israelite um, probably just after the exile so that I can take into account all the Old Testament (coughs) teaching. And the principle here is often telling me that we read the Bible from the wrong wrong end in Hebrew. (coughs) So I'm going to actually start at Chronicles and work my way back to Genesis for reasons that I hope well, they may not become clear, but at least they are logical to me. So, could we have the first slide, please, Philip? Uh, so, son of Adam. What would it have meant to an Old Testament Israelite to have been a son of Adam? Um, you can see here, put on the screen, that the word Adam occurs 550 times in the Old Testament as one of the words for man or often for humankind, or occasionally for a, a particular individual. It's not the only word, there's ish and enosh as well. As a name of an individual, I've put uh, there are five times in Genesis uh, 4 and 5, and three times in the Masoretic text of Genesis 2 and 3. 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. There are also five other disputed places elsewhere in the Old Testament outside of um, Genesis 1-5 to which may or may not refer to Adam and I'm going to deal with them later There is also um, a reference to a place called Adam just on the other side of the Jordan in Gilead that's referred to once or possibly twice depending on how we decide Hosea 6 should be interpreted so, next slide please. So, the, the first answer is, not much. What did it mean to an Old Testament Israelite? Not much. Because um, you'll see here, this diagram, the, the blue stripes represent the frequency of the mention of these characters outside of the narratives in which they occur. So this is, these are the, the, this is the frequency of references to Adam, Abraham and so on, outside of Genesis. And you'll notice there that this is the, the most comprehensive would be six references to Adam outside of Genesis 1-5. to And as I say, five of those references are disputed. So there's actually only one. Now if we compare that with Abraham, who outside of Genesis is mentioned 44 times, and in fact 74 times in the New Testament. Notice there, Adam is referred to more in the New Testament than in the Old Testament outside of Genesis. Uh, The person of Jacob is mentioned 26 times, but the name Jacob as a synonym for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, 122 times. Um, and in the phrase God as the God of Jacob in a further 18 times Joseph is referred to 53 times outside of Genesis in the Old Testament and outside of the historical narratives dealing with the life of David he occurs something like 50 times in the Psalms and the Prophets and a further 58 times in the New Testament so what do these boring statistics tell us? well they tell us that what mattered to an Old Testament Israelite was not that he was a son of Adam, but that he was a son of Abraham and a son of Jacob. In other words, his identity, his theological self-understanding, derived from the fact that he was a son of Abraham and a son of Jacob, not from the fact that he was a son of Adam. And we can draw a parallel with us as Christians, our identity, our self-understanding comes from the fact that we are in Christ and we make far more of the fact that we are in Christ than of the fact that we are in Adam it doesn't make it any less a fact or any less fundamental to what we believe so therefore, although it is striking that our Adam is referred to so little outside of Genesis 1-5 to we mustn't overemphasise that fact Because it's not surprising that for an Old Testament Israelite what mattered more was his identity in Abraham and in Jacob. Also, um, we can overstate the case about Adam if we don't take into account the references to Edom. In other words, if we do our research purely with a concordance and we look at the name Adam, then we're not getting all the references to Adam in the Old Testament because there are some passages referring to Eden where doesn't, the name Adam doesn't occur. So, next slide, please, Philip. We'll start with 1 Chronicles, then. 1 Chronicles, chapter 1. These are the first four verses. And this is the only other dis, uh, undisputed reference to Adam in the Old Testament. And here we have a list of names, beginning with Adam. And if we have the next slide, please, Philip. Thank you. So, the way that the first chapter of Chronicles works is that the first four verses basically give us Genesis 5, the genealogy in Genesis 5, and then verses 5 to 23 of 1 Chronicles give us almost verbatim the table of nations, which should be on the next slide. Thank you. So this, this is the table of nations, so-called, from Genesis 10. Really, it's the, uh, the, the descendants of Noah, the 70 of them, um, which is a way of uh, identifying and, and uh Listing all the peoples of the world. So, why does the chronicler start this way? Well, he does so to set the story of Israel within the wider context of human history from Adam to Cyrus. A couple of points that this reminds us of, however. First of all, Adam is never seen as anything other than a real human ancestor. In the Old Testament, there is no discernible point at which these genealogies switch from being mythological or legend to being history. And the second point to make is that representative headship is a pervasive idea in the Old Testament. Who you were descended from mattered very deeply, it defined who you are. It's very interesting to see um, the programme Who Do You Think You Are on BBC TV, where various celebrities are taken back into their ancestry. And it's amazing how instinctively people assume that their great-great-great-grandfather somehow determines who they are. Um, People, even today, in a a world where headship is, is a a very unpleasant and unattractive concept they still, it's instinctive somehow that people regard themselves as being the product of not only their DNA but somehow the the collective psychology of their um, ancestors Mm -hmm. Having said that the fact that the Chronicler is setting uh, the history of Israel within that historical framework what follows in Chronicles are the significant genealogies namely those of Abraham, Israel, Judah, David and Levi. So again, we have this uh, truth that all men are descended from, all people are descended from Adam, and that is important, it's true, it's, it's historical, but it's not the most theologically significant set of ancestry for the chronicler. But I think we can make a parallel here with the genealogies in the Gospels because Luke does something very much like 1 Chronicles 1 when he traces Christ's genealogy back to Adam and he is therefore setting Jesus within the sweep of human history beginning with Adam up to the 1st century AD. Matthew's genealogy on the other hand does the other thing and that is that he highlights the the theologically significant ancestry of, of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So we've got these two kind of ways of looking at history. One, the line of descent all the way from the first human being. The other, if you like, the theologically significant line of descent. Can we have the next slide, please? So from 1 Chronicles 1 we go on to Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. Which um, many people now would not consider to be a text about Adam at all. The uh, The yellow highlighting there indicates that there is a translation question over the phrase uh, sons of Adam. Most people following current linguistic knowledge um, and also that will be supported by the Targums and most English versions have humanity. But the older tradition from the Septuagint through into the A.V. New King James and also interestingly favoured by Duane Christensen in the word commentary, although he doesn't explain why uh, frustratingly, is to translate this Sons of Adam and then in the the blue highlighted bit of text there is a textual question and so the uh, Septuagint here favours the translation Sons of God and that has gone into the Good News and the ESV but the Masoretic text uh, supported by Targums and followed by most English versions has Sons of Israel. Either way you have a contrast in this verse between two groups of sons. Either the sons of Adam or just humanity in general in the first part and the sons of Israel or the sons of God in the second part. Now, if we follow the Septuagint, sons of God, then it really means that God divided up and allotted places for the human race according to the number of angelic beings. And people would support that from Daniel 10. The idea of uh, angelic beings, uh, princes over certain kingdoms and so on. If, however, we follow the Masoretic text as sons of Israel and we actually allow that this is sons of Adam I don't think it matters particularly. What we have here is a contrast between the table of nations which I showed you a moment ago and the next slide, Philip which are the 70 descendants of Jacob listed in Genesis 46. And it is significant that you have these two listings of descendants, the descendants of Noah, the so-called table of the nations, um, earlier on in Genesis, and uh, in Genesis 10, and the descendants of Jacob. And there are 70 individuals in each of them. And so there is an interpretive tradition which says that Deuteronomy 32 is making that contrast Mm -hmm. between the nations, and the 70 descendants of Jacob. And in that sense, it doesn't matter too much whether we take it to be sons of Adam or sons of humanity, therefore sons of Noah. Because Noah is a kind of second Adam anyway in, in, uh, in Genesis. And it doesn't diminish the point that we have, again, this picture of a massive humanity the descendants of Adam or Noah and within that an elect group the descendants of Jacob and there's a relationship between the the, the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of of Adam or humanity in general and that the fate of the nations of, of people at large all the sons of Adam in some way depends upon God's chosen nation of Israel and as I'm going to argue later, this takes us back then to Adam's role within Genesis, within the Garden of Eden and his priestly relationship or priestly office I'll come to that later, but for the moment I'll just draw a trajectory, Philip, the next slide please we can trace a trajectory therefore possibly from Adam if that's what Deuteronomy 32.8 means, but if not probably from Noah Uh, through Deuteronomy 32 to 1 Chronicles chapter 1 to the genealogies of Christ and into Acts 17.26 where Paul says God made from one blood every nation of mankind having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now, I don't want to tread on the toes of people who are coming after me and speaking here, but it seems to me that there is this trajectory which you can trace through the Old Testament, which does give us a line from Adam through Israel to Christ as being, if you like, the chosen man within God's purposes through whom blessing will come to the nations. And therefore, Israel's role is proleptic of Christ's. A man part of but distinct from humanity through whom the nations are reconciled to God. Israel, I'm going to argue, is a kind of new Adam and Christ is the true Israel and Christ is the second Adam. Next slide please, Philip. So now we're going to go back to Genesis 2 and 3. And the first issue... want to deal with is the question of mythology. And this is a very lively debate at the moment and has been for the last 150 years, but there are things being written all the time on this question. Is Genesis 2 and 3 merely mythology? And the difficulty (coughs) immediately is what do you mean by myth? Popularly, of course, myth means something untrue. We talk about urban myths, don't we? Things that are in the popular imagination, but aren't in fact true, and the New Testament uses the Greek word mythos in that, that sense. However, scholars, Old Testament scholars, and also in other disciplines like archaeology and anthropology, use the myth in a different use the word myth in a different way. They use myth to mean the um, uh, stories that cultures write about the distant past, which embody their self-defining ideas. And therefore, whether those stories are true or not doesn't really matter. What matters is how those stories affect that culture and how it lives and how it sees itself. Now, if you'll forgive an illustration, which might be close to the knuckle, um, there is a, a myth that the English and the Welsh are genetically distinct. And this is a very popular myth on both sides of the River Severn. But I was quite struck recently to discover that DNA analysis has shown that white English people, 95% of their DNA is identical to the Welsh. So in other words, the Anglo-Saxon invaders did not push the Welsh into Wales or Cornwall. It was merely a very small military elite who came and established um, rulership over the native Britons, but English people and Welsh people are genetically the same. Now that may be deeply unpopular for some here. (laughs) Because it's a very popular myth. As I say, on both sides of the River Severn. So in other words, whether it's true or not is secondary. The fact is, if people believe it's true and it affects the way that they, they behave and their prejudices and so on, that's the interesting thing the anthropologists would tell us. Now when we come to the Old Testament, we have scholars like Peter Enns, Uh, very recently, saying that, well, myth was the normal way of writing distant history in the ancient Near East, and so the writer of Genesis just employed uh, that way, that mode of discourse, if you like, to write about distant events to give self-definition and understanding to um, the Israelites. In fact, he would go further and say that it was written to give self-definition and understanding to post-exilic Israelites. In other words, these were stories that were taken over from Babylonian literature, which was discovered during the exile by the Israelites. And um, the uh, story of Adam's expulsion from the Garden of Eden would have given them an un- a, their, helped them to understand their exile from the land of, of uh, Judah. And that was the reason for it. I quote, and Israel's historical moment, that of national crisis, drove their theologians to engage their past creatively. I think this is creative in the same sense as the phrase creative accountancy. In other words, it's a lie. Now, this is very strange to me because you would have thought that what post-exilic Israel needed was a paradise regained myth, not a paradise lost myth. Anyway, that's not the major problem with ends his view. The other thing I want to state at this point is that the ancient Near East actually produced no creation myths. None that survive at the moment, that have been found at the moment. Now you might think, well, that's rather a bold claim. Well, I'm going to make that claim in the words of two uh, French archaeologists who work in the Department of Ancient Near Eastern Antiquities in the Louvre and I imagine they have no theological axe to grind. (coughs) And they say, quote, in the surviving texts of the Sumerian and Akkadian traditions, there is nothing which could really be called a creation story. So you will find quite routinely people say, well, there are these, you know, Babylonian creation stories and myths and so on. There aren't. Let me uh, quote them again. This is how they go on. They point out that there are references to the beginning of the world in ancient Near Eastern documents of almost every kind, But, origins of the world were never conceived of as a creation in the sense of the act of a creator God, but rather as a natural process whose internal evolution led to the visible order of the cosmos and from which the different gods and goddesses themselves emerged. Now again, these are not theologians. These are secular scholars writing in the field of Assyriology. And they're saying the ancient Near East didn't actually produce any creation myths. There is no Babylonian genesis in that sense. However, the most significant flaw in all this is the definition of myth itself. And this is why we are deeply grateful to John Oswald for writing this book, copies of which are available at a discount price on the stall at the back, uh, The Bible Among the Myths. And this is a brilliant book on this subject, in which he absolutely demolishes the idea that there is anything mythological in the early chapters of Genesis or indeed elsewhere in the Bible. Quote, Myth is a literary or oral form which retells some phase of primordial events with the intent of reproducing those same effects in contemporary life. It's characterised by the understanding that the cosmos is God and God is the cosmos. Thus, whatever happens in one sphere of the cosmos, human, nature or deity, will be reproduced in the others. This may be called the principle of continuity. There is nothing of this nature in the Bible. Can I have the next slide, please? So this um, compares and contrasts the, the thinking and the use of mythological literature with the Bible and Genesis in particular. So, the, the, the um, Yellow panel represents Genesis, which records history. It's written as history. Whereas myths from the ancient Near East were written, yes, they are written in one sense as history, but they're written so that they are reenacted, possibly reenacted every year at a New Year festival. Very different purpose. Genesis obviously has one God, ancient Near Eastern myths have many gods in strife. Things happen because of strife between the gods. Genesis uh, is not about fertility. It's not about securing the fertility of the land for another year through the reenactment of fertility rituals, which is what the ancient Near Eastern myths are by and large about. Genesis has a high view of humanity. The ancient Near Eastern myths have a very low view of humanity and what humanity was created for. Genesis has an ethically consistent view. In other words, there are... Consistent views about what is right and what is wrong. In the ancient Near Eastern myths, you have capricious gods who decide what's right and what's wrong according to their own views, and humanity is at a loss as to discover which god they've got in, in trouble with. And finally, Genesis refers to non repeatable events. These are things that happen in history once with devastating consequences for all time, but we can't reproduce those effects. Whereas mythological writing is there precisely because it relies upon the idea that there are repeatable effects through reenactment. And the fundamental principle that underlines all this is that in the Bible God is transcendent; He is outside of creation. Next slide, please, Philip. Um, so these are these are Oswald's diagrams. Um, so transcendence, you can see that God is round the outside of the circle. God can break into the circle but humanity and nature can't break out of the circle. Also, there is a clear division between humanity and nature. The diagram on the right-hand side, continuity, everything infuses everything else. And so you can do something in one area with humanity and the animal kingdom and so on, and somehow affect deity through doing that, because everything is part of one cosmos. That is completely alien to the biblical view. So therefore, next next slide please Philip, when we come to uh, Genesis the difference expresses itself in this way, Eden is not um, an archetypal place, it is a real location and Ken read to us the geographical location, the pointers which tell us this is a real place. Um, The snake in Genesis 3 is a snake, it's not a cosmic serpent, it's a snake. God is suprasexual. In other words, he doesn't have a, 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 he's not a sexual being in that sense, whereas the gods of the ancient Near East were. And following on from that, there is nothing sacral about the uh, sexual activity between the man and the woman, in Genesis, which is hinted at in Genesis 2. Again, there's nothing uh, sacral about that. There's nothing in that that is going to somehow produce the fertility of the earth and make crops grow. Um, human actions in Genesis 2 and 3 are not predetermined if you understand what I mean by that in other words it's not a a case of fate Adam was fated to do this and he had no choice about it there is uh, human choices and decisions matter ethical choices matter he didn't just fall into a trap in Genesis 2 and 3 so then could the Bible stories have been constructed from ancient Near Eastern myths. And Oswald's point on this is that everything that is fundamental to mythological thinking is absent from the Bible. Is it therefore possible that a post-exilic Jew could have so removed all trace of mythological thinking from a set of stories that he inherited in Babylon or found in Babylon, and yet allowed to slip through the filter one or two mythological details it's, it's inconceivable that that could happen so next slide please Philip, what about talking snakes and magic trees because the man in the street if you read him Genesis 3 that's probably what he will say Or Genesis 2 and 3 I think the first point I want to make is that <coughs> An Old Testament Israelite would have been much less troubled than we are between, uh, by the distinction that we make between literal and metaphorical language. If you look at Isaiah 55, very well-known chapter, you see there how remarkably, within the space of 13 verses, we have uh, the metaphor of God depicted as a street vendor, if you like. You have a theological... Uh, precept that God forgives those who come to him. You have a call for people to seek God, although that can't be geographical or spatial. We have a simile of God's word, the effect of it being like the effect of the rain, and you have the metaphor, trees clapping their hands. All in the space of one chapter in, Genesis, uh, in Isaiah. And there's a psalm which refers to the sea clapping its hands, and rivers clapping their hands as well. Now, admittedly, Genesis 2 and 3 is not poetry or oracle, but next slide Philip we find this that God is said to form and that's a word used of a potter particularly forming a vessel out of clay, he is said to breathe He's said to build a woman, the verb is barna, to build, he builds a woman out of the rib he plants a garden and at the end of Genesis 3 he makes clothes he acts as a tailor now, commenting on this, uh, these verbs, um, uh, Collins, which is also a book at the back here, I um, know oh it's actually in his commentary on Genesis one to four. I don't think we've got we've got his book on Adam. He says he describes this as anthropomorphism. In other words, God is being described as doing things which actually he didn't literally do. It's um, speaking about God in human terms to help us understand or to enable us to understand what he did but God is a spirit, he doesn't have hands he doesn't have lungs so he can breathe literally, this is anthropomorphism so says Collins Um, however what do we then say about chapter 3 verse 8 where it says that Adam and Eve hid because they heard the sound of God walking about in the garden now if God is described as walking about if that's mere anthropomorphism then how could Adam and Eve hear the sound of it can we have the next slide so and, and what do we do then when, in all those times when it says God said did Adam and Eve hear a voice or did it just come into their minds now what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that we're probably more comfortable with the idea when we get to Genesis 3 that we've got a theophany at this point that God actually appeared in human form and that's, we've got no problem with that he did that with Abraham um, several times and at many other points in the Old Testament but what I'm really saying is that we can't actually produce two neat boxes like this and say well these things belong to anthropomorphic language and these things belong to theophanic language it's not that easy to decide when the narrator is flipping from one to the other but there's another point and that is this that neither anthropomorphism nor theophany bothers us we don't say, ooh, ooh, ooh mythology when we have something oh, anthropomorphic language I understand that theophany God appearing in a visible form I understand that we don't think that's mythological so it suggests to me that what we have actually in the language about God in Genesis 2 and 3 is a way of looking at the magic trees and the talking snakes in Genesis 2 and 3 so Philip next slide thank you um, we could do it this way that Satan is either represented by the symbol of the snake and I would like to copyright the term ophiomorphic language for that from the Greek word for snake or he appeared in serpentine form. And the tree of life and knowledge they could be symbolic that's dendromorphic language or they could be sacramental which means they are real trees uh, and this is the classic Reformed interpretation, they're real trees, but their power is not magical, the power is in the words, the promises surrounding them, which God gave. So somewhere between, you might opt for one or the other, or you might opt for some, something in between those options, we have a way of understanding those elements within Genesis 2 and 3. Henri Blochet, of course, famously read these as symbolic other conservative exegetes prefer a more literal reading. I don't think we can actually draw a clear line or distinction between them. We can't be too dogmatic, I think, about what is literal and what is not. What we can say is that something actually took place in a real location in space and time, and Henri Brochet would say that, The idea that Genesis 2 and 3 is a metaphor for timeless truth it's describing what always or generally happens in life that's foreign to the Old Testament. Um, We can say that Genesis 2 and 3 are history conveyed through a literary genre that makes use of metaphors and symbols so long as we acknowledge uh, Oswald's argument that there is nothing mythological the mythological worldview is completely absent, and therefore it's better to use the term symbolic than mythological. Henri Blochet says quote, The presence of symbolic elements in the text in no way contradicts the historicity of its central meaning. And Oswald goes on to say that the, uh, that the use of figurative and imaginative terms is to convey the meaning of events that would be difficult to grasp in ordinary prose because of their distance from us in both time and substance. And he goes on to say, quote, the essential points are easy enough for a five-year-old to grasp, but the truths are profound enough that skilled scholars cannot plumb their depths. Next slide, please. There's widespread consensus among Bible scholars that Eden, in Genesis 2 and 3, is a kind of proto-temple. There's massive literature on this. I can give you bibliographical references afterwards if you want. I'm just going to run through very quickly in case you're not familiar with this idea some of the points about Eden that are temple-like. It had an eastern entrance guarded by cherubim. It contained the tree of life and the tabernacle and temple were were decorated with um, tree-like decoration and they also had the branched lampstand which probably represented the tree of life. The verbs used in Genesis to serve and to keep are used of the sanctuary duties of the Levites gold and onyx precious materials mentioned in Genesis 2 were used later on in sanctuaries there is a river flowing from Eden and that reflects uh, later Zion theology, Psalm 46, Ezekiel 47 and so on it is a slightly circular argument next slide Philip because it also runs the opposite way and that is, and this is not unique to the Old Testament in the ancient Near Eastern world the temple was a miniature cosmos and so what you have on the, uh, the left and the middle that's the tabernacle in Solomon's temple uh, on a horizontal plane and what you have on the right hand side is the universe in a vertical plane but if you represent them in this way you see that the temple in some way represents the universe from the, the pillars outside Solomon's temple maybe referring to the pillars underneath the earth and the sea, that great bronze Uh, that the word is sea literally in Hebrew that represents the sea and then the holy place represents the earth um, and the most holy place represents the heavens and that's a common feature of ancient Near Eastern temples and also true of the Israelite tabernacle and Solomon's Temple. So the idea of of the um, cosmos as a temple and then Eden as a microcosm So as I say I'm not going to go into all this now but I'm just saying this to stress the fact that Genesis was written for people who were familiar with the idea of the universe as a temple in which God dwells and the temple as a representation of the the miniature universe if you like and therefore and this is the point I really want to make from this Adam's role would have been seen as a a priestly role within a temple as in chapter 1 of Genesis his role is there kingly And this suggests that as the human race grew without the fall that Eden was intended to expand and fill the whole earth. It starts off as as a temple within nature. Furthermore, therefore, Israel becomes the priestly kingdom and therefore it is called in some sense to fulfil Adam's priestly role which he forfeited through the fall and Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel 36 eschatological passages looking to the future the eschatological Israel see the land of Israel as Eden like and the term Eden is actually used so there is a suggestion there that the glorious future of Israel will be in some sense a fulfilment of the role that Adam was meant to have similarly in Joel 2 verse 3 the land of Israel has lost its Eden like quality because Israel has disobeyed. And so the Adamic and Edenic status for the people in the land are conditional on their obedience to the covenant. So that brings me on to the question then. Next slide, Philip. Was there a covenant with Adam? This is the point at which the director of the John Owen Institute regrets having asked me to give this paper. Maybe. Now some people would say, well the word covenant doesn't occur until Noah that's true, but that's not the end of the debate that's the beginning of the debate Next slide please So we might start in Hosea 6 verse 7 Um, You can see there, but they like Adam or it could be as at the place Adam Now this is a lengthy debate where I'm I'm going to Cut the Gordian knot at this point. Most commentators will say it's the place name Adam. Um, that's true in Hubbard, uh, Dearman, 2010. He agrees. However, there are those Bible commentators who would disagree: McComiskey, Collins, Gentry, and Wellman, and others. And they would say it refers to the covenant with Adam. Now, this has been surveyed recently by uh, Byron Curtis in an absolutely exhaustive article in which he looks at this verse in every conceivable version and translation and all the ins and outs of it. And he argues it's both. He says... (laughs) That wasn't intended to make you laugh. Um, He says that Hosea, yes, he was punning on the name Adam. So he's referring to the place name where something had happened recently, a violation of some covenant that happened recently. But he's also there also referring back to Um, the original transgression of a covenant in Eden. And by his own admission, in his own words, he has his cake and eats it. But I think most people will acknowledge a single verse in Hosea is not an an adequate foundation for the case for a covenant with Adam. So, next slide please. Come on to the question of a, a covenant with Adam. And... I'm going to just look at two books recently. One is uh, Paul Williamson's biblical theology book Sealed with an Oath in the Apollos series and then um, Gentry and Wellam Kingdom Through Covenant which came out about three months ago. Next slide please, Philip. So I'm going to try and summarise the argument as, as briefly as I can. So those like Williamson, Paul Williamson who say there isn't a covenant in Genesis 2 they would say that the essential element to a covenant, a bereath in the Old Testament, is there must be, uh, at least by implication, a solemnization by means of a formal oath. And there is nothing like that in Genesis 2, he would argue. Um, also, when you look at the ancient Near Eastern covenant forms and the Old Testament covenant forms, as we find covenants made between individuals, the terms of those covenants don't fit well with anything described in Genesis 1-3 to and the further argument is that the relationship between God and Adam that existed before the fall did not need a covenant it didn't need any formalisation because it was implicit in the relationship of God to Adam to God as, if you like, equivalent to a natural son on the other side of the case Gentry and Wellham it's actually Gentry has written this section in the the book, they will argue for a broader definition of covenant. They say, well, you don't have to have something bereath-like. A covenant, really, anything that is a covenantal relationship based on promise and trust and obligations and responsibilities and privileges is a covenantal relationship. Um, And one of the strongest points, they argue, is from the fact that in Jeremiah 33, as you're probably well aware, God speaks about his covenant with day and night. Well, Genesis 1 doesn't use the word bereith but, Genesis, uh, but Jeremiah does use the word bereith about Genesis 1, apparently. And that seems to me to be the strongest argument. Of course, for that reason, it doesn't deal with Genesis 2. And so what Gentry and Wellham have to do is argue that Adam is included in that covenant with um, day and night, with creation. They would also argue that kings and priests were installed and a covenant, uh, ordination if you like, there was a covenant cut then and therefore you would expect one with Adam if he has a kingly, priestly role. That's a good argument as well. And that in the ancient Near East, kings were used in, said to be in the likeness of the gods. And there is a brilliant section in Gentry and Wellam dealing with what does likeness mean in Genesis 1. Uh, image and likeness, brilliant section I think arguing very persuasively from the ancient Near Eastern background that this is a, a kingly role that's been given to Adam. The interesting thing, however, is that they attack each other, these, these two groups of scholars. It, it all comes down to the definition of covenant. How you define it, and Williamson says, well, if you define it so widely, you can make anything into a covenant. And uh, Gentry and Williams, well, Williams say, Williamson say, well, if you define it so narrowly, obviously it's not going to fit. Um, part of the problem I would say is the fact that covenant is in use as a theological term now it's a theological term in the Old Testament and to me that's the strongest reason for seeing um, a, a, a bereith in Genesis 1-3 to its use as a theological term seems to transcend its use um, between human uh, individuals or parties um, but of course covenant is also in use in classic covenant theology from the 16th century onwards at a time when we hadn't discovered the ancient Near Eastern background and so what people are now doing is saying well what did a Berith mean to an ancient Israelite and does that square with what it meant to a covenant theologian in the 16th, 17th century um, I think I'm going to say no more about that um, the sake of time, can we move on then to the fall first point I want to make about this is that we don't need a fall to believe in universal human sinfulness, we don't need an explanation of its origin and I think some Old Testament scholars are arguing that the Old Testament is much less um, tight around the collar about the origin explaining how things came to be than we are um, but even liberal critical scholars would admit that the Old Testament teaches universal human sinfulness quote, this is J.A. Wainwright from a sort of 40 year old book now he says, the Old Testament accepts without reserve the fact of the univers- universality of sin, this is not a dogmatic statement but a matter of empirical evidence, all men do sin, and that's a liberal saying that however When he comes to Genesis 3, therefore, he says Genesis 3 is not about explaining how we came to be sinners, it's about explaining some of the more puzzling and trying aspects of life for an Old Testament Israelite. For example, why agriculture is so laborious, why childbearing is so painful and dangerous. And at at its most reductive, this line of argument, an etiological explanation of Genesis, is that it's really there to explain why snakes have no legs. Now, I don't think anybody's saying that now, but it was said 100 years ago. However, next slide please, Philip. Yes, Genesis chapter 3 does explain why agriculture is hard work and why childbearing is extraordinarily, surprisingly dangerous for humans in a way that it isn't for many animals. But it does so in a consciously theological way. And you can look at the way that the curses in Genesis 3 mirror the blessings in Genesis 1 and 2. So man is given dominion over animals in Genesis um, uh, 1. In Genesis 3 we now have strife between humanity and the animal kingdom represented by the snake and the seed of the woman. The command to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1. Now the woman has difficulty in childbearing. The ground yields food, uh, food for humanity and all animals. In Genesis 1 and 2, agriculture becomes hard work after the fall. Man is a viceroy, a king and a priest, but he is expelled from the Edenic temple. In Genesis 3, God pronounced everything to be very good, and in Genesis 3, it has become less than that. And so this parallelism has a central nexus in the account of human disobedience to a command of God. There is a spiritual cause for the aspects of life which Genesis 3 explains and describes. And the cause is not the arbitrary will of the gods. It's a decisive act of presumption on the part of an original human pair. No ancient Near Eastern myth describes anything like this. There's further support for Genesis 3 as a fall and not just a paradise lost. In Ecclesiastes 7.29, you know that's uh, very well, and I won't quote that now for the sake of time. Genesis, uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29, God uh, made man good, but man has devised many schemes. But then we go on to Ezekiel 28 and 31. I can't remember, I thought I had a slide for this, but I haven't. Can you, can you go back, Philip? Just, we'll come back, thank you. So Ezekiel 28 and 31. Not well-known passages. But both of them refer to the Garden of Eden. In 28, we have a proclamation against the king of Tyre. And Eden, and he is described as being a cherub in Eden, perfect and, and beautiful. So Eden represents an original state of perfection and privilege from which the king of Tyre has been cast down because of his pride and his iniquity, and he exalts himself and wants to become like God. Ezekiel 31 we have Assyria likened to a great tree so great and beautiful that even the trees of the Garden of Eden envied it but then that tree is brought crashing down because of its pride and that is also in some way associated with the Garden of Eden. Now these two passages thankfully this is not a conference on Ezekiel and I don't have to explain to you what all this means because at this point all we have to say is this that these passages which are difficult on many points suggest this thing, at least, that for an Old Testament Israelite, he, an Old Testament Israelite was familiar with the idea of a great fall from a privileged position in Eden, brought about by human presumption to godlike status. And the fact that Ezekiel alludes to it without explaining it suggests to me that that was well known to an ancient Israelite. If these, um, if the early chapters of Genesis had been, if the ink was still wet in the time of Ezekiel or if it was slightly after the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel couldn't a- appeal to it in this elusive manner and nobody would have understood what he was saying it suggests to me that this, the narrative of the fall from Eden was so well known he only had to say Eden and everybody knew what he meant liberal critical detractors downplay the significance of Genesis 3 Ezekiel ramps it up and presents it in dramatic and seismic terms. The fall and expulsion are a spiritual matter resulting from pride and iniquity. The other thing is that he uses the fall motif about the enemies of Israel. And that, again, doesn't support the idea that Eden's story was intended to explain uh, Israel's expulsion at the exile. Because Ezekiel isn't using it about Israel. So lastly then, last slide please. Philip, Genesis 3.15 I wanted to end on a positive note and looking again at the Hebrew text of Genesis 3 for, for this paper I was struck by the very unusual way in which this verse is written. We have these emphatic pronouns Um, which is why here I've over-translated as he himself, because there's a who there which you don't need in 15c he himself, and particularly atar 15d, you yourself you don't need that in Hebrew to say he will do this you will do that very, very striking and it's almost as though what God is saying here is that none other than he the seed of the woman will strike you not your seed, you on the head, and none other than you, not your seed, but you, will strike him on the heel. That's very striking. Very strange language to use if it's just describing the perpetual hostility between snakes and human beings. Suggests a conflict between two individuals, not their unspecified descendants. And I would argue it transcends a fulfilment in Genesis 4 and 5 yes we do see it partially fulfilled in Cain and Abel and seed seen through Genesis and so on but the language that's used there seems to be pointing to something bigger also it's the seed of the woman and not the seed of Adam which will strike the snake's head the first readers of Genesis this would immediately have recalled to them those other birth narratives in Genesis Isaac, Jacob and Esau Benjamin, Zerah and Perez Their births are described in portentous terms. There are antenatal prophecies or oracles pointing to the significance of the child. For that moment, the mother's importance eclipses that of the father in those birth narratives. And then for the Israelites in Old Testament times who had the rest of what we call the Old Testament, of course by the time you get to Isaiah 7 and 9, birth oracles there, it's not reading too much into it to say that an Old Testament Israelite familiar with that tradition of birth oracles and the Messianic birth oracles in Isaiah 7 and 9 would have looked at Genesis 3 and recognised there that there was a motif here, a promised one a saviour, a deliverer this is not just traditional Christian interpretation, I think it's there in the very words which an Old Testament Israelite would have read or heard so I think for an Old Testament Israelite to be a son of Adam meant to belong to a fallen race, whose original father had forfeited his status as a viceroy and priest in God's garden sanctuary. With it, Adam and Eve had also forfeited the perfect material blessings of this life and brought hardship and strife into the world. This was an unrepeatable event, not a metaphor for life or a myth to be reenacted to manipulate capricious gods into granting fertility. Eden was gone forever. Nevertheless, there was a promise in the terms of God's judgment on the snake that aspects of Adam's intended role could now be fulfilled through God's election of a descendant. An Old Testament Israelite would have understood the call of Abraham and the Sinai covenant in this light. And as further revelation evolved, begun to look forward to the Davidic king as the means by which the promises could be regained. So, I think, in summary I would say this. Some of what the New Testament and systematic theology would say about Adam would undoubtedly surprise our Old Testament Israelite. But none of it would contradict what he understood about Adam from the Old Testament. It would merely take it further and the same would be true of course about Messiah if a Christian theologian went back to an Old Testament Israelite and explained Messiah in Christian terms he would be surprised but none of it would contradict his understanding of Messiah from the Old Testament he would merely take it further I think there are clearly demonstrable trajectories in the Old Testament leading from Adam into what the New Testament teaches about him in the light of Christ's coming having said that I also think that looking at Adam as an Old Testament subject um, brings to light one or two things that we perhaps neglect if Old Testament Israel would have seen itself as in some sense taking on or fulfilling a role that Adam had been intended to have then surely that means that the New Testament church also has some kind of an Adamic priestly role And, of course, we know about Priests of All Believers, 1 Peter 2, and so on. But I wonder how much we have really thought that through in terms of our relationship to the world in which we are. Whether we see ourselves as having that role as one of, and yet distinct from, humanity and our existence being for the blessing of humanity how far do we take our priestly role? Is it just that we pray for unbelievers? Or do we need to think it a bit further through than that? And the other point at which I thought this might be relevant today, which you may or may not want to take up in discussion, is this question of mythological language. Oswald makes a very striking observation in this book. He says that there are only three worldviews or religions that have the view of God as transcendent. And those three... Are Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And the reason that they all three have that view is because they all derive from the Old Testament. And the point he makes, therefore, is every other religion and worldview in the world operates on the principle of continuity. And he knows far more about this than I do, and he makes some, demonstrates this, makes some case from uh, uh, Eastern religions and so on. Now it seems to me that as New, the New Age movement and paganism, neo-paganism, whatever you want to call it becomes more popular, people are more and more interested in Eastern religions we perhaps need to be aware of what is distinct about our view of a transcendent God and be aware of people coming into our churches, becoming Christians but they've, got a, they've come from that background of other religions, do they really grasp that and that that is very fundamentally different from the worldview that they have and you know, when you look at the sort of ancient Near Eastern way of, of seeking to manipulate the will of the gods to produce blessing for us, there are certainly aspects of the Christian church which seem to me to be tinged with that view of the world and we must reject it. Thank you.